Welcome to Sovereign Grace. We are people under God's word, and so we want to open the word together. And as good Bereans, really as a congregation, consider the word of God together and what it says. I have a long passage to read to you this morning. I'm really going to read starting at Genesis 24, verse 15. And we're going to carry that reading all the way through Genesis 24 and verse 61. And we're going to consider Rebecca. And so... As you do, turn to Genesis 24, 1 through 14. We looked at last week. We'll pick up verse 15 this morning. If you don't remember 1 through 14, as we turn to verse 15, let's let me remind you, Abraham's wife Sarah has died. Abraham's son Isaac is now of age for a wife. And so Abraham is sending his servant to go back to his homeland where he's from to take a wife from the family of Terah. And so... Abraham's servant has headed to Mesopotamia, specifically the city of Nahor, where his brother Nahor is, and he's gone there looking for a wife for Isaac from that family, and Abraham's servant has been praying specifically that a woman would come out and serve him water at the well and serve his camels, and that when he addresses that woman, that she would be the one whom the Lord has chosen for Isaac. He would know that because not only would she serve him water and serve his camels water, but she would invite him to the family home and she would be from the proper family and she'd be willing to come. And so he's been waiting at the well outside of the city as women are coming out to draw water and he addresses one. And we pick up that address in verse 15. Look there with me at verse 15. Before he, that's the servant of Abraham, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah's sister, thus the man spoke to me, 
he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels, gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he's become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him, he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife from my son, from the daughter of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also, let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arm. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for a son. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah and their sister and her nurse 
and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we recognize as we come to this story that Moses has written for our hearing so that we would know the unfolding promise of the coming of the Messiah, so that we would learn from the examples of these saints who came before us. We pray that as we consider this word, your spirit has superintended this inspired, infallible, inerrant, sufficient word. We pray that your spirit would give us understanding. May Christ, the head of the church, speak through the word and by the spirit in the use of your minister for the sake of your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we commission a missionary couple to Southeast Asia. And you might wonder what that commissioning has to do with the passage that I just read. What does this passage have to do with sending missionaries? Now, you know that we started back in the book of Genesis, and I could have stopped and said we won't consider this week the book of Genesis. We'll just kick that off to next week and specifically preach a sermon on missions. But as I was studying specifically Rebecca and her story, I thought, actually, I need to use this passage for our missionary sending. So what does this story have to do with sending missionaries? I want to propose to you two ways that this narrative about Rebecca connects to commissioning missionaries to the nations. Two ways. First, Rebecca's story demonstrates that God is our Savior. And not only ours, but the Savior of all men. Rebecca's story demonstrates that. God is the Savior of all nations. Second, Rebecca's story shows us the example of a woman who beautifully adorned the doctrine of God with her life of faith. Shows us the example of that. Our Christian lives are to be lived in such a manner that we make Christian doctrine, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ, look beautiful. And Rebecca's example does just that. Those are our two points today. Really, God is our Savior, and we should adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So let's consider our first point. And if you want to put it in the historical context of the story with Rebecca, maybe I say it this way. Rebecca's story demonstrates that God is our Savior. And not only ours, but the Savior of all men. Last week, I pointed out that Genesis 24 is the longest narrative in the book of Genesis. It's the longest story. And in Genesis 24, we are seeing a number of dynamics at play as Moses is helping us transition from Abraham and Sarah to Isaac and Rebekah. We're seeing that transition happening. We're also beginning to learn about men like Laban, whom Jacob will later run into, and how Laban tries to delay things, as you'll see in great detail in Jacob's story. We're seeing the Lord keep his promises to Abraham as he has offspring. 
as he is in the land of promise, and as he is blessed. And we're seeing Abraham, really Abraham, Abraham's servant, Isaac and Rebekah, all trusting in Yahweh, the covenant Lord. We're seeing that played out in Genesis 24. The God of Abraham, Abraham's servant, Rebekah and Isaac, all trust that their God is the God of creation and the God of salvation. The God that Abraham trusts, I want to pause here for a minute, is the God who created all things. The one who covenanted with Abraham is the God who created all things. That's why Genesis 12 and following, the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, should not be disconnected from Genesis 1 through 11. In Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all things. And he created all things good. And he created man as his image bearer, very good. He created man in true righteousness and holiness, to walk with him, to live a life of worship with him. And then he commanded man, you shall not eat of a particular tree. So there's a kind of test that's given to man, to Adam and Eve. And you all know the story of Adam and Eve and how they rebelled against God when they were tempted by the serpent, by Satan, and they ate from the tree of which God commanded them not to eat, and death came upon them, which God commanded would be the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. They were suffering death, both physical death, the breakdown of the body and the eventual grave, and spiritual death, separation from God eternally. God's righteous judgment was bearing down upon all of us due to our sin. Because in Adam's fall, sin we all. He is our representative head. He is the one who stood the test before God in our place. And he failed, and we all fell in him. And so we're all born guilty in, with sin and corrupt in sin. And God's righteous judgment bears down on us all. We know that because death comes for us all. They usually say that there's like two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. Death is definitely certain in life. Death is coming for us all because of our sin. But God. But God. In the face of our sinful rebellion, God covenanted to save his people. God promised to send the seed of the woman who would be our savior. And Rebecca's story falls in line of that promise of the seed of the woman. Look at Genesis 3.15. And we're just going to sweep through really briefly. As the Lord curses the serpent, we hear this. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See, we deserve just wrath, but he promised us free grace in Christ. This serpent-crushing seed of the woman who would come and save us. This second Adam who would succeed where the first Adam failed for us. Listen, the great theme of the Bible is not that God is creator. The great theme of the Bible is not even that God is sovereign. I hear people say that a lot. They really love that God is sovereign. That's great. But if God is sovereign and he is not good, that's scary. The great theme of the Bible 
is that God is our Savior. God promised the seed of the woman, the second Adam, who would keep the law where Adam, Israel, and we all failed. He would keep the precept of the law, that's its commands. The commands that Adam violated, that Israel violated, that we violated, the second Adam, the seed of the woman, he would keep those commands for us. He would also keep the penalty of the law due to us for the violation of the law. He would do both of those things for us. And so this seed of the woman's been announced, and this seed of the woman is the great anthem of Scripture. God is our Savior in Jesus Christ, his Son. That is the story of the Bible. Listen to the song of the nations at the end of all things. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Friends, this is really what this whole book we call the Bible is singing about. The story of God our Savior in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the message that Genesis is telling us. The story of God our Savior in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus tells us that Moses spoke about me. You search the scriptures because you believe that in them you might have life. And it's they that speak about me. Jesus began teaching about himself, Luke tells us, beginning with Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. When Jesus taught about himself to the apostles, he started there. That's the reason for the genealogies. Genesis is arranged around genealogies because we're looking for the seed of the woman, the serpent-crushing savior of the world who will come through Abraham's line. Look at Genesis 5.1. We're going to move a little bit quickly now. Look there. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now let's look. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now, I pick up on Seth and I skip Cain and Abel, but I want you to understand, the first child they have is Cain. Adam and Eve have is Cain. The second child is Abel. Cain cannot be the seed of the woman, nor can Abel. Why? Because Cain is a murderer. Abel can't be the seed of the woman because he was the one murdered. Here comes the third son, Seth. Now, Seth's genealogy is then given to us through Adam. Go down to verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief 
from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. In other words, Noah is the one we're looking for. The seed of the woman is coming from Adam through Seth, now through Noah, and Noah has three sons. You guys know the story of Noah's ark. He gets off the ark and God covenants with him again. And when God covenants with Noah, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's, if you will, a recreative event. We're starting over. But look at Noah's sons, Genesis 9. And look at verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Notice this. Three sons. Adam had three sons. We're coming through Seth, the third son. Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Remember, where is Abraham living? In Canaan, among the Canaanites. And he does not want his son to marry a woman from the Canaanites because they are wicked people. As you see, Ham is the one from whom the Canaanites come, he's the one who uncovers his father's nakedness and is cursed. But Shem is the one who's blessed, that son of those three. Look down at verse 26. This is Noah. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So Adam and his three sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth, now Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So from Adam through Seth to Noah, from Noah through Shem. Now look at Genesis 11 and verse 10. As we go through Shem's line, verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. Now you go through Shem's line, you come all the way down to Terah, verse 26. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So from Adam through his three sons, Cain, Abel, and actually specifically through Seth, now from Seth's line, from Noah and his three sons, specifically Shem, and now from Shem's line, Terah and his three sons, specifically Abram. The Lord covenanted to send this seed of the woman through Abraham and Sarah. Abram takes a wife, Sarah, Abraham and Sarah are then promised that they will have a son and that the seed of the woman is coming through him. Now Genesis 12 through 22 then narrows in on Abraham's story and tells you about him and Sarah and the struggle to have this son. And they have two sons, one through Abraham's Egyptian slave Hagar and one through Sarah, that is the chosen one, the son of whom the Lord has set apart, through whom the seed of the woman will come. His name is Isaac. If you remember, after they had Isaac in their old age, the Lord said to them to go up on the mountain and offer Isaac as a sacrifice, as a test of Abraham. And the Lord provided a ram in the thicket instead of Isaac. But look at Genesis 22 as we focus in on Isaac. So we've moved. Do you understand the movement in Genesis? Adam through Seth to Noah through Shem to Abram, and now Abraham, to Isaac. How do I know that? Look at Genesis 22, and look at verse 17. As the Lord speaks to Abraham, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens, and as the sand of the seashore. He's picking up Genesis 12, 
I'm going to bless you and all nations through you. He's picking up Genesis 15. Look up at the stars. You'll have more offspring than you can count than the stars of the heaven and the sand of seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. He's going to conquer the seed of the serpent. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now Sarah has died. And Abraham is seeking a wife for Isaac from the line of Terah. And thus, this is the message of Genesis 24. God is our Savior who was sending the seed of the woman through Rebekah and Isaac. That's what's happening here. If you miss that in Genesis 24, you have missed the point of the whole story. Can you learn good examples from these godly people? Absolutely. But if you miss the most important thing that's happening, which is that we are being taught how the line of the Messiah was preserved, then you've missed it altogether. Now, how do I know that? Let's consider Rebecca, as we consider in the context of the whole book of Genesis and really the whole of biblical history, we hear that Rebecca is the one who's blessed to bear the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham. Look at the blessing given to her, Genesis 24 and verse 60. This blessing isn't just thrown in. Remember what we just read in Genesis 22. Genesis 24 and verse 60. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. You guys see that language? So the Messiah, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, is coming through Rebekah. And while we consider the example of faith that we see in Rebekah, I want you to hear how keen Moses is to tell you about the coming Christ. This story is, above all, about the coming Christ. In fact, the first thing we learn about Rebekah is that God is protecting the line of the Messiah. So the first major consideration regarding Rebekah is that her story is being told to teach you about the coming offspring of Abraham and the seed of the woman. You'll see that protection in that this woman is from Terah's line, and this woman is sexually chaste. Now, her exemplary life is to be learned from. But don't miss the point of this whole story as we approach that. The main point is that God saves. He will send the Savior of mankind through Abraham's line. This is the message we're sending our missionaries out to proclaim, is it not? God saves. God has saved us in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. They were looking forward to the second Adam, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham to come. We are now looking back on the fact that God has kept his word and he has come. That he lived perfectly, keeping the law in every regard, tempted in every way yet without sin. That he went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sin, drinking to the dregs the cup of God's wrath in our place. That he conquered sin and death, rising from the dead ascended to the right hand of the Father where he ever rules and reigns, and sent his spirit so that we would have life, so that we would have faith, so that we would be united to Christ, forgiven of our sins, and counted righteous in him. That's our message. That's the message of the Old Testament. That's the message of the New Testament. That's the message of Christ's 
church. That is the Messiah to whom we look and whom we believe. That's what we send our missionaries out to proclaim. Sovereign grace, we bear the responsibility to proclaim the message of salvation in Christ and Christ alone to our family and friends and neighbors and coworkers. We bear that responsibility. We are a kingdom of priests so that we might what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And the Lord in his providential dealings has placed us here. He's placed you in the job you're in, in the neighborhood you're in, in the city you're in, in the state you're in. Though you might rail against God for putting you here, he's placed you here for a reason. Not just so that you might do your secular vocation, though that honors him. And not just so you might gather to Christ's church to worship him, though that is the central activity of Christ's people. But Christ is not tarrying in heaven. We're not awaiting his return because he just wants us to have nice lives while we meet at a church and worship. He's not yet returned because he's not yet done saving people. And he's left us here to go proclaim that message to the people around us. And, in addition, we raise up people from us and send them to nations who have no witness of Christ so that Christ is known among them. If the Lord just wanted our worship, he'd call us home already. Christ's church has been left here to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This message of the kingdom will be proclaimed to all nations and then the end will come. So the question is, are you speaking of Christ to those around you? I mean, they're not there accidentally. God has put them in your life for a reason. Do you even open your mouth about Jesus? Do you pray for them that they might hear the word and be saved? Do you invite them to church? Depending on the statistic you read or the study you read, 85 to 92% of Christians in America when surveyed and asked, how did you end up coming to faith in Christ, answered like this, my friends invited me to church. Take all the other programs, and they make somewhere between 8 and 15%. My friends invited me to church. You know that even in our current generation, the latest studies in 2023 say, Somewhere over 70% of your neighbors and friends will come to church with you if you ask. Even among professing atheists. So are you speaking of Christ to those around you? We have tracks in the back if you need help articulating the gospel. We understand that. Sovereign Grace, we bear that responsibility in our own locale. And we bear the responsibility of raising up people and sending them to nations who have no gospel witness. We bear those both. It's to this end that we commission our missionaries this morning. To the two of you, this is the message you've been sent to carry to the nations. You preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Him you proclaim, warning and admonishing everyone. To that end, you're sent. With that said, let's consider our second point. Rebecca's story shows us the example of a woman who adorned the doctrine of God with her life of faith. Shows us the example of a woman who adorned the doctrine of God with her life of faith. 
Rebecca really is a prominent and exemplary figure of Christian faith in this narrative. She, of the wives, I think of the three wives, seems to play the most prominent role in Genesis from what I can tell when I read. She seems to stand out in some ways more than Isaac does as you read the narratives. Some scholars actually call Rebecca the female Abraham. She's the only one of the patriarch's wives who was blessed to have a husband who didn't take on other women. She lives in such a way that she adorns the doctrine of God with her own life. You know, in his letter to Titus, in chapter 2, Paul gives commands. You don't have to turn there. But Paul gives commands in Titus 2 to older men and younger men, to older women and younger women, and then he gives commands to bond slaves. And as he walks through those commands, he keeps using phrases that make it clear that our lives and our lips should match. He says that our confession of faith and our life of faith, if you will, should bear a striking resemblance. So he uses phrases like this. In Titus 2.5, Paul says, as he's telling them to behave in particular ways, he says this, that the word of God may not be reviled. In Titus 2.8, as he's telling them to behave in a particular way, Paul says this, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. In Titus 2.10, after he addresses bond slaves, he says this, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And then he grounds it all by saying this in Titus 2.11 and 12, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. How have you heard that, Sovereign Grace? The grace of God appeared, actually, the grace of God appeared in the person, Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus came and he brought us salvation, and in doing so, the grace of God is training us to live Godly lives, lives that adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The life of true and lively faith is a beautiful life of obedience that springs from the work of the Holy Spirit uniting us to Christ by faith. And we see that life of lively faith in Rebecca. She's a beautiful example of faith for us to imitate. So I want to look at, just briefly, five ways in which Rebecca's faith adorns the doctrine of God and that we should follow her, if you will. Five ways. First, Rebecca is sexually pure. Look at Genesis 24, 16. So she's morally chaste. Genesis 24, 16. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. So she's very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. Rebecca believes in the Lord and so walks according to his will when it comes to the use of her body. She does not submit to the urges of her body, but to the word of the Lord. You understand, ours is not the first generation in which people have bodily urges to sin. If you will, Rebecca knows she has been bought with a price. Her life is not her own. And as Christians, we should imitate her faith. For this is the will of God. You know, people always ask me, what's the will of God? Here, you ready? 1 Thessalonians 4.3. For this is the will of God. Okay, great. My breath is, you know, it's like baited. I'm ready. What is it? Tell me what it is. Your sanctification. Your holiness. 
You ready? Now he's going to modify that. He's going to add on to it. He's going to explain it a little more. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Christ's church ought to stand out in this, if you will, sexual revolutionary world as a people who understand that the will of God for our lives is our sanctification, who control our own bodies in holiness and honor. Now that might seem an odd instruction to give to our missionaries. However, I hope you know, if you're old enough, you already know this. When the pressures and stresses of ministry and the temptations of the world and the devil come flooding toward you, sexual temptation may and likely will follow suit. Many have disqualified themselves from ministry via pornography and adultery. Many. You must pursue holiness. That means you have to be on the lookout for even the small opportunities to lust. Even the small ones. Clickbait on a news site. You guys see it? Don't look at it. Don't click on it. The problem we have a lot of times with sexual temptation is we think it's just a picture like this. It's not that big. It's not that scandalous. It's just small. Let me tell you what happens with that. If you don't put that to death, those small cracks grow into fissures that your whole life in ministry falls into. First, it's sin all on its own. Second, if you think feeding that beast will satisfy it, you are wrong. It will cause it to grow and consume your whole life. Second, Rebecca is industrious and generous. 2418, look there. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. It's interesting, he also has men with him who we imagine Rebecca probably gave water to as well. This woman, the woman of godly character, if you will, the Proverbs 31 woman, is not merely sexually chaste, but she is hardworking and generous toward others. Hardworking and generous. That's a godly woman. Morally chaste, hardworking, and generous. She cares about the needs of others. She is busy at her work rather than being a busy body. Look, we often do counseling with folks who are riddled with issues because in part, and sometimes primarily, they have way too much free time. They're on social media, they're in their heads, and it seems like they're constantly in search of drama. They won't hold down a job. They won't go to school. And if they're stay-at-home moms sometimes, they won't actually work hard at it. Being a stay-at-home mom is virtuous if you work hard. Just like being an employee is virtuous if you work hard. But if you're just lazy, so what? You're in sin. And if you have enough time as a stay-at-home mom or as an employee at work that you can fill your head with gossip and be a busybody in everybody's lives and get all involved in drama, then you aren't working hard enough. 
You're too focused on other things. As Chaucer said, yeah, in a missionary sending sermon and in Genesis 24, I'm going to quote from the Canterbury Tales. You ready? One of our missionaries quoting from great literature is particularly appropriate for. But listen, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Idle hands, hearts, and minds will be busy with sin. Guaranteed. So Christians ought to work hard, not as unto man, but as unto the Lord. And we're to give ourselves in service to others. We're to be generous and ready to share. It will help you, friends, to walk in holiness if you're not idle all the time. As a man ordained to the office of gospel ministry, which is happening this morning, the elders are laying our hands upon you to ordain you to a life of service and gospel ministry. Your life is being given to Christ and his church, to preaching the word of God for the glory of God until you breathe your last breath. Not to watching Netflix in a foreign country or finding ways to use your time idly because we all can't see it. That's a real problem in the missions world, friends. It's a real problem in the pastoral world. And we exhort you with Paul's language, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching or the doctrine. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Third, Rebecca is hospitable. Look at Genesis 24 and verse 24. She said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord. Look, the Christian is committed to hospitality. Hospitality is not an incidental trait of the Christian life that belongs only to Christian people who happen to be, by personality, outgoing. It's fundamental to the Christian life. Elders are to be hospitable, as are all Christians. We're to be hospitable both to the church and to strangers. Our love for others is shown in our desire to care for others, to break bread with others, to have others in our home. To our missionaries, as those sent by Christ's church, we exhort you with Paul, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. This is the Christian life, here and abroad. Fourth, Rebecca is obedient to God's call. This is the kind of obedience every parent hopes for. You know, when I was younger, a young parent, they called it, they'd say the acronym FTO. Do they still say that? First time obedience, right? Okay, so that's what they said when I was young anyway, young parent. First time obedience. You want your kids, you just say, do this. Yes, sir, and off they go, right? That's what you're hoping for. Rebecca's like that. Look at Genesis 24, 58. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, 
I will go. See, as with Abraham, when Rebekah is called, she believes the Lord's word and she obeys immediately. I mean, how easy would it have been for her not to obey? Her family saying, hey, stay here a little longer. I'll go. True faith bears the fruit of obedience to God's word. She's a believer, and that's not shown merely in the profession of her lips, but in the fruit of her life. You can profess faith and not possess faith. Do you understand that? But Rebecca is one who clearly possesses faith. By God's grace, she believes. And the fruit of that faith is obedience. We see in this commissioning service that Christ has given our two missionaries the faith to answer his call. When they heard the word of the Lord, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Those two answered, here I am, send me. And the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, has spoken by the Holy Spirit through his church, and he's answered, set apart those two for the work to which I've called them. So it is our great privilege and our great pleasure to set you two apart for this work. And it is our prayer that you'll continue to walk in faith as you have to this day. Look, times will come when your faith will fade. When the cares of this world will come crashing in. And the call of the Lord will sound ever so faint behind all the noise around you. It's at those times that we exhort you to remember this day. By the authority the Lord Jesus has given to the elders and ministers of this church, at the behest of the work of the Holy Spirit, you're called to declare Christ's name among the unreached peoples of the earth. Do not doubt that. We will continually remind you. Your calling is going to be fraught with all sorts of physical and spiritual perils. It is burdened with the weight of souls who are blind and lost. It will be opposed by principalities and powers that you do not see. Yet it is the glorious high calling and privilege of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and adorning that doctrine with godly lives. You may and likely will feel like paupers who are despised, rejected, and unknown in this world. But you're Christ's servants. And as Spurgeon has said, if God has called you to be a servant, then don't stoop to be a king. There's no greater honor a man can have than to be a servant of the word of Christ among the nations. And to that you've been called. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us as a people, to proclaim Christ with our lips, to adorn that doctrine with beautiful lives. We ask that you would cause our missionaries to go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit, to be relentless in the task calling that you've placed in their lives, so that Christ would be known among a people where he is not presently known. Give them endurance. Give them strength and faith. And may, through their faithfulness, we see much fruit in the salvation of people who've never heard of Jesus. Cause our church to support 
and pray and encourage them well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.